0: Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1? On a winter morning in the middle of the baby boom in Nashville, Tennessee at Vanderbilt Hospital, something happened that had a very profound impact on me. I was born. And as a result, I experienced life, and a large part of life had to do with relationships. I learned to relate to my parents, to my brothers, to my neighbors, to my friends, to my teachers, to my coaches. Well, on a summer night in the middle of my teenage years outside of Nashville at a state park, something far more profound happened to me. I was born again. And that's what Peter writes this letter about. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, you have been born again. You have experienced a new birth. And just as our natural life is worked out in relationships, so our spiritual life is worked out in relationships. If you are a Christian, you have been born again to a, into a whole new life, in a whole new family, with whole new relationships and Peter is going to spell out those various relationships over the course of this book he's going to show us our new relationship to God our new relationship to our brothers our new relationship to the world our new relationship to life in general our new relationship to the church but he starts out with the most important relationship of all in chapter 1 verses 13 to 21 Notice the contrast. At the end of verse 18, he says that we inherited our feudal way of life from our forefathers. But now we have a new way of life in which we are, verse 14, children. And the one we call Father, verse 17, is God. We have a new relationship with God. God is now our Father. And in this passage, Peter is going to answer the two questions that arise from that new relationship. Number one, what does God expect? And number two, why does God expect it? First of all, what does God expect? Verses 13 to 17. What is it that God expects from us as His children? What should characterize our new lifestyle in relationship to God as our Father? Well, the answer can be summed up in one word, it's in verse 14, it's the word obedient. You might want to underline that word or circle that word because that is the key word in this passage, obedient. You know, if you search the scriptures to find a list of things that children are responsible to do in the home, it will be a short list. Because there's only one thing that children are called to do. Ephesians 6.1 Children, obey your parents. You know, as a parent there are a number of things I would like to see my children do. I would like to see them do well in school. I would like to see them relate well to others. I would like to see them achieve their goals. But there is one thing that I will not stand for my children not to do. And that's obey. You see, that is the bottom line. and that is the one thing that God expects of us as His children. Right after God anointed Saul as king in First Samuel chapter 15, he gave him his marching orders. He said, "I want you to go and utterly destroy Amalek. Don't spare anyone." I want you to kill man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, donkey. I want you to totally exterminate them. So Saul went into battle and he won the battle. But when it came to crunch time, he spared the king because traditionally, when you want a victory as a king, you brought the opposing king back and he was part of your victory celebration. And so Saul spared the king because he didn't want to mess up his very first victory celebration. And then when he got ready to destroy all the animals, he couldn't bring himself to waste some of those wonderful animals because they were such rich commodities. And so when he came back, God sent Samuel to have a discussion with Saul. And it's interesting, when you read that passage, you'll find that Saul used three forms of defense. Number one, he lied. When he saw Samuel, his first words to him were, I have carried out the command of the Lord. Hi, Samuel, I did everything God told me to do. And you remember Samuel said, then why do I hear sheep bleeding and oxen lowing? If you obeyed the Lord in everything he told you to do, then why does this sound like a stock yard? And so he went to defense number two. He rationalized. He said, well, we kept the best of the animals to sacrifice to the Lord. You ever find yourself doing that? I didn't exactly obey God, but I had a good reason not to do it. A spiritual reason. And so Samuel reminds Saul that God did not send him to evaluate the spoils. He sent him to exterminate the spoils. He didn't send him as an appraiser, he sent him as an annihilator. And so he says to Saul, you have done evil in the sight of the Lord. And so he opts for defense number three. He blamed others. He said, I did obey, but the people took the best of the spoils. And so Samuel responded this way in 1 Samuel 15, 22. He said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. See, God doesn't say, well, you didn't obey me, but my, what a wonderful sacrifice. No. Obedience is the bottom line. In fact, because Saul did not follow God in complete obedience, God took his throne away on that occasion obedience is the bottom line it was true in Saul's day it's still true in our day we are to be obedient children and in verses 13 to 17 of first Peter chapter 1 that obedience is reflected in three areas our attention our action and our attitude first of all our attention verse 13 what's the most common excuse the children give for non-compliance. I didn't hear you. I have discovered as a parent that the problem in those cases is usually not with my voice. The problem is with their ears. You see, if we are going to be responsive in obedience to our Heavenly Father, we have to be attentive to what He's telling us. Now, how do we become more attentive to God? Well, he tells us three things in verse 13. First of all, he says, therefore, gird your minds for action, or literally, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, in the first century, robes were in. And they wore robes that were loose and long. They were great for warmth. They were kind of like wearing a blanket. But they weren't very good for action. Next time you go to a wedding, just watch the bridesmaids in their long formal dresses, running after the bouquet. You see, those long formal gowns are great for standing in. They're not good for moving around. And in the first century, when someone wanted to move around, they put a belt over their robe, and they made it into kind of a mini tunic, and they tucked all the loose ends into that belt. And so they girded up their loins. They got ready for action. In Exodus chapter 12, Israel was told to eat the first Passover with their staffs in their hands and their loins girded. Why? So they were ready to leave Egypt when God called. Today we would say you need to roll up the sleeves of your mind. You need to get ready for action. You see, action doesn't begin with your muscles. Action begins with your mind. What you think controls what you do. And some of us never get around to obedience in our behavior because we're so programmed to disobedience in our minds. You ever found yourself saying to yourself, you know, I really know that God wants me to do that, but I don't seem to ever get it done. Well, maybe it's because that action calls for overalls and work boots, and your mind is dressed in a house coat and slippers. You see, we are to gird our minds for action. Now, how do you gird your mind? Well, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14 says, the belt is truth. We are to allow the Word of God to renew our minds. We are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We are to allow the truth of God to be the place where we tuck in all the loose ends that we keep tripping over and we get ready to obey. I was up at the university last Saturday watching my son run track and I paid special attention to the starter. He holds a gun in the air But before he fires the gun, he says, on your mark, get set, bang. See, if we're going to obey God, we need to get on our mark. We need to get set. We need to be in the starter's block mentally so that we're attentive to His commands. And then the second thing he says in verse 13 is, Keep sober in spirit. Now, there are several Greek words used in the New Testament for sober. This particular word means to be free from the influence of intoxicants. Now, obviously, we need to apply that literally. It's hard to be under the control of God when I'm under the control of alcohol. But you know, alcohol is not the only thing we need a sobriety test for because there are other intoxicants that can put us into a spiritual stupor. Ever heard anybody say he's drunk with power? Well, there's, if we have too much of a lot of different things, they can affect us that same way. Money, possessions, career, reputation, authority, importance, entertainment, sports. When we overindulge In any one of those things, they can cause us to lose our spiritual focus. They can cause us to become blurred in our spiritual vision. You know, I got caught up in the St. Louis Rams accomplishment this year. And it was especially exciting to me uh, the, the clear Christian testimony of their quarterback, Kurt Warner. But you know, if we get overindulged in something like that, it can be spiritually intoxicating. A couple of days before the Super Bowl, I happened to open the obituaries and I saw someone I knew in the obituaries. You know what my first thought was? Too bad he, he died before he got to see the Super Bowl. Now that is the statement of a spiritual drunk. As if this guy's in eternity, saying, "Well, I only have one regret. I missed Super Bowl 34." You know, there's only, there's nothing more pathetic than a drunk, stumbling, mumbling, heading in no particular direction at all, and that's the spiritual state Peter wants us to avoid. He says we're to be sober, clear-headed, alert. And then he tells us a third thing in verse 13. He says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's your hope fixed on this morning? A better job, a bigger house, a newer car, a larger bank account? Nothing wrong with those things, but that's not where our hope is to be fixed. Peter says our hope is to be fixed on the grace to be brought to you. I love that. Because salvation is all grace. It came by grace. It's kept by grace. And it will be completed by grace. And that final installment of grace will come when Jesus Christ is revealed. When Jesus Christ returns. John said it this way in 1 John 3, two. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared what we shall be, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We are right now the children of God, but we are walking through this world incognito because we look a lot like everybody else. We have been changed inside. We are still waiting to be changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And that will happen when He comes. Now, if you knew that when Jesus Christ returned, you were going to be changed to be just like Him, wouldn't you fix your hope on His return? And not just, well, I'm sort of hoping. Peter says you're to set, fix your hope Completely. On the grace that's coming to you when Jesus is revealed. Not 50%, not 80%, not 95%, completely, totally, absolutely. Christians are to live in the future tense. I love working with engaged couples because they make all their plans in light of their future marriage. Well, guess what? You're engaged. And we are waiting for our bridegroom to appear and we should be making all of our plans in light of that coming marriage. You see, hope is the prelude to obedience. First John 3.3 3 says, Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. If I am longing for Jesus, I will be living for Jesus. Bob and Wendy invited us over next Sunday for Easter lunch. And right after she invited me, Wendy said, well, what kind of pie do you want? And I said, I want lemon meringue. Now, she makes meringue that looks like the snow-covered peaks of Colorado mountains. I have my hope fixed (laughs) on that lemon meringue pie. And I want to tell you something. It's going to affect the way I eat lunch. You see, I'm not going to be eating lunch thinking, I hope I get dessert. I'm going to be eating less lunch because I know that I'm getting lemon meringue pie. You see, outlook determines outcome. Abraham had his hope fixed on a heavenly city, and he walked in faithfulness to God. Lot had his hope fixed on some fertile land over by Sodom, and he walked in failure. You see, obedience is expressed in our attention. Are you prepared for action? Are you sober-minded? Is your hope fixed completely on the grace that's coming to you when Jesus returns? Secondly, obedience is expressed in our action. Verses 14-16. to How should we act? Well, Peter answers that first with a negative and then with a positive. The negative is in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. And the other day I heard Janice Joplin singing on the radio, I'd trade all of my tomorrows for one single yesterday. You know, It wasn't a few days after she recorded that song that she traded all of her tomorrows for a heroin overdose. And, and Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix, who did likewise, are kind of the icons of the late 60s, early 70s. Which is why I stand around and scratch my head today when everybody seems so nostalgic about the 60s and 70s today. I saw the other day where The Who is going to have a reunion tour. Well, 30 years ago, The Who sang, I hope to die before I get old. Now they're old. And they're going to help us remember the good old days. In fact, last year they tried to have a reenactment of Woodstock, peace, love, music. Had to call in the National Guard because it broke out into a riot. Listen, as Christians, we have no reason to be nostalgic about our past. Those are not the good old days. These are the good new days. What is it that characterized our old life? What is it that characterized our life B.C., before Christ? Well, Peter points out two things in verse 14. Number one, he says it was a life of ignorance. We were totally ignorant about spiritual realities. Someone came up to you and said, I'm saved. You would say, saved from what? The other day, I heard about a school teacher who passed up free tickets to take her class to Romeo and Juliet. The reason she gave was because that play didn't model a lifestyle of choice. All the models were heterosexual relationships, it was just too normal. You say, Does that surprise you? No, it doesn't surprise me. It disappoints me, but it doesn't surprise me because she's ignorant. She is spiritually illiterate, and so was I, and so were you. And then the second thing he points out is our lusts. We were driven by our selfish desires for pleasure, possessions, prestige, privilege, power. The question we asked was not, is it morally right? The question was, does it feel good? The question we asked was not does it please God, the question was does it satisfy me? And Peter says that's not the way a child of God is to behave. We are not to conform to our old lifestyle. You say, well then what are we to conform to? Well, that's the positive in verses 15 and 16. But like the Holy One who called you, Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, You shall be holy for I am holy. You know, children tend to imitate their parents. We have a picture of Lindsay when she was little and she's dressed in my hat, my sweater, my boxer shorts, my pants, and my shoes. I have that picture hanging in my office because it reminds me that she's watching me. And she's imitating me. Children tend to imitate their parents. And as God's children, we are to imitate our Father. And what's the attribute that Peter singles out that we are to imitate Him in? Holiness. Now that's a word we're not real comfortable with. We would rather Peter have said love or mercy or grace But holiness, holy is a word that means set apart. And in this context, he's talking about being set apart from the sin of our past and the sin of this world. You say, well, that's an awful high standard. Couldn't he lower the standard just a little? Why doesn't he just say, be good? Don't do anything I wouldn't do. Stay out of trouble. Well, you see, God cannot lower the standard because God is the standard. You see, in verse 16, he quotes from Leviticus 11.44 where God says, I am holy. That is the only attribute ascribed to God in the third degree. Holy, holy, holy. And Peter is simply saying, since we are his children, like father, like son. Our father is holy. We ought to be holy. Our hope is fixed on one day being like him. What will that mean? Being holy. Our actions ought to be directed toward right now becoming like him. What's that mean? Holy. See, Lindsay doesn't fit into my shoes. But that didn't stop her from trying them on. And I don't fit into God's holiness, practically speaking. But that shouldn't stop me from trying it on. Obedience is expressed in our action by not being conformed to our former selfish lifestyle, but rather by being conformed to God's holy lifestyle. And then thirdly, our obedience is expressed in our attitude. Verse 17, And if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. What is the attitude that children ought to have toward their parents? Well, Leviticus 19.3 says, Every one of you shall fear his mother, and his father. Now, if that's the attitude I'm to have toward my earthly father, how much more am I to have that attitude of fear toward my heavenly father? I grew up in a family with three boys. And um, mom didn't work, so she was always home. And, And we could always tell when we had gone too far over the line because she would say, I'm telling your father. Now, we never like to hear that. We would say, wait a minute, Mom, let's work this out. You know, hit us again with a little twig, and we promise not to laugh this time. (laughs) Let's negotiate here. No, I'm telling your father. And that invoked a healthy fear in us. And you know, that fear was accentuated whenever we knew that Dad knew. You see, if Dad didn't know, we were breathing easy. Well, how much does our Heavenly Father know? Well, Peter reminds us in verse 17 that the one we call Father is the judge of the universe. And he's not like Judge Judy. He's impartial. He's not swayed by appearance or impression. And He's thorough. He's not looking at intentions or listening to excuses. He's looking at your work. He knows all the facts. And so Peter says at the end of verse 17, during the time of your stay on earth, conduct yourself in fear, in respect, in awe. You see, when it comes right down to it, you are motivated by one of two things. Either the fear of man or the fear of God. Either you make choices based on what people think or you make choices based on what God thinks. Do you fear God? Proverbs 14.27 says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. We should be motivated by a reverent fear for God that says, I never want to displease Him. I always want to obey Him. And so verses 13 to 17 answer the question, what does God expect from His children? And the answer is obedience. In our attitude, girded up our loins for action sober in spirit our hope fixed on Christ's return in our action holiness in our attitude fear and then the second question he answers is why does God expect it in verses 18 to 21 when you tell your kids to do something what's the first question they ask why take out the trash why mow the lawn why Well, Peter seems to understand that. He tells us what we're supposed to do as children and he follows that up by answering the question, why? And that question comes out in verse 18. Or that answer comes out in verse 18. He says, knowing. I've told you what to do. Now here's why. Because you know some things. And what he's going to spell out in these few verses is all about our redemption. And I, I just want to pick out four quick things about it. Number one, the need for redemption, verse 18 knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. We inherited a way of life from our forefathers. Our father, grandfather, great-grandfather, all the way back to Adam. And Peter says that way of life is futile. It's empty. It's useless. The Bible doesn't have many flattering things to say, about our life apart from God. You see, though physically speaking you may be strong and healthy and busy, spiritually speaking, you have no pulse. Because you're dead in sin. You're dead toward God. You have absolutely no relationship with Him. No pulse. And you have no purpose. Because he said back in verse 14, you live in ignorance. You don't understand what's really going on in this world. So you have no pulse, you have no purpose, and you have no promise because you're heading for eternal judgment. Now I would say that's a pretty futile way of life. And the problem is we have no resources to ever change it. That's our need for redemption. And then secondly, I want to highlight the price of redemption, verse 18 knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That word redeemed means to set free by paying a price. It means to be released by the payment of a ransom. It was a word used in that day of slaves on the slave market who were Purchased and set free. They were ransomed. That's what happened to you and me. In the note left in the Ramsey home for Jean-René Ramsey, the the ransom price was set at $118,000. Did you ever wonder how much you would be worth? I guess that explains why I was never kidnapped. But what did it cost God to ransom you? Well, verse 18 says there was no dollar figure because money couldn't pay for it. Couldn't be paid for with anything perishable. When I go shopping with my wife and she comes out of the dressing room with a dress on, she always says, do you like it? You know what my first question is? How much does it cost? And if she says to me, don't ask, then I always say, well, you know, it really doesn't look that good. (laughs) Well, if you're looking for a dollar figure on your redemption, don't ask because no amount of money could pay for it. It was paid for in blood. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they covered themselves with fig leaves. God sacrificed animals to clothe them. That was far more than a fashion statement. That was a principle. And that was a picture to us. It's spelled out in Leviticus 17.11. It says, it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And that message is painted across the Old Testament Scriptures. Every single year at Passover, every household took the very best one-year-old lamb they had, and they sacrificed Him. In Genesis chapter 22 and verse 7, Isaac asked the question, where is the lamb? And John the Baptist answered it in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The precious blood that paid for our redemption was the blood of the unblemished and spotless Lamb of God. Or as it says in verse 19, the blood of Christ. And that's why throughout eternity, Revelation 5.12 tells us the redeemed will sing, Worthy is the Lamb. Do you know what blood type you have? If you're AB negative, you have the rarest of all blood types. It's the most precious, it's the most valuable blood type because it's hard to come by. And I'm sure if you have AB negative blood, the Red Cross is probably calling you regularly. Because it can save a person's physical life. But there is a blood far more precious, far more valuable than that, and it's the blood of Jesus Christ. It can save your spiritual life. And it's the price God paid to redeem you. And then thirdly, I want you to see the source of redemption. Verse twenty. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you." There's a popular cliché today. You hear it a lot in sports. They'll say, well, maybe he can redeem himself. The idea is he made a bad play. Maybe now he can make a good play and pay for that. And some people seem to think it works that way spiritually. If I've done some bad things, then maybe now I can do some good things and redeem myself. Listen, when it comes to the redeeming of your soul, there is not one single thing you can do to pay one single penny of your debt. Redemption begins and ends with God. You see, you weren't even around when God initiated redemption. Verse 20 says, He did so before He ever poured the footings for the universe. That's an exciting concept. God had already decided to pay the price to redeem you before He ever made anything. Which tells me that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it didn't surprise God. He was expecting it. It was part of His plan. He had already decided long before that to redeem us. You see, redemption is not accomplished by you. Redemption is accomplished, as it says at the end of verse 20, for the sake of you. Redemption is one-sided. It's all God's doing because He's the only one who could afford it. He's the only one who could pay the price. And then fourthly, we see the result of redemption in verse 21. Who through Him are believers in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, we often think that the logical progression of faith is that first of all, we believe there's a God. And then secondly, we believe more specifically in His Son, Jesus Christ. But this verse tells us it's really the opposite of that. First, we believe in Jesus Christ, and because we believe in Jesus Christ, we now believe in God. You see, before we believe in Jesus Christ, we simply believe about God. When we come through Jesus Christ, we come into that new relationship with God. As he says here, we have faith and hope in God. And that's a great place for our faith and hope to be because he reminds us in this verse that God is the one who raised Jesus from the dead and glorified Him. And guess what? Those are the same two things He's going to do for us when Jesus comes back. If we have died, He will raise us from the dead and together we will be glorified to be like Jesus Christ. Why is He going to do that for us? Because we have a new relationship with God. We have been brought into His family. We are His children. We get to call Him Daddy. And you see, that is what He purchased with the precious blood of Christ. He purchased you and He purchased me to be His children forever. You say, well, what can I do in return? Well, you can go back and apply verses 13 to 17 and be obedient children. As a young lady, Frances Havergale, wrote these words in a poem which we now sing in a hymn, and it's a challenging question. I gave my life for Thee, my precious blood I shed, that Thou might ransom be and quicken from the dead. I gave, I gave my life for Thee, What hast Thou given for me? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for this wonderful passage that describes for us how simply by faith in Jesus Christ we can be born again into Your family. That we who had a futile way of life now have a way of life which is eternal. Which is Your life. And that today, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we can call you Daddy. What a privilege, Lord, it is. But as we get excited about that relationship, Father, we pray that we might walk through this world during our time here with fear of you. So that we do everything we can in all that we do to please you in every way. And Lord, we pray that our lives might though we haven't been changed to be what we will be, that our lives might be evident, that You are changing us to become like You, that people might see us and say, He reminds me, she reminds me of His or her Heavenly Father. And Father, we pray that You might accomplish that by the work of Your Holy Spirit in our lives for Your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.